0: Welcome to the podcast of small differences with Ian and Otis
1: just acknowledge that it's been a few weeks
0: <laughs> <laughs> it has been a few weeks yeah it's good it's good to have you back in here man yeah. good
1: good to, good to have good to see you Ian yeah well I'm uh, definitely hap- happy to be back like Thanksgiving week, man, that was rough. <laughs> yeah, so Ian was super sick.
0: Um,
1: I was also sick for a a decent portion
0: of the layoff. I also went to I also took my family to Disneyland. So um, there's been a lot of things getting in the way of us recording, but we're we're back, yeah
1: and very, very happy to be here.
0: yes. Uh, feels feels good to be back in front of the microphone. Um, we should we should thank some people. Yeah um we we kicked off the Patreon last episode. Uh we've got, we've got some decent support out of that and we're we're spending the money, folks. Yeah. Um and not on candy and cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we you know secured the services of a sound engineer. Uh, we're gonna send this audio off to, to him to edit afterwards, and so hopefully you'll already see the results of your generous donations.
1: I um, with this particular, with this episode. Yeah, I don't know that our voices are going to sound any better, but the sound quality will be. <laughs> yeah,
0: all of my likes and ums will be <laughs> much clearer. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, thank. I want to thank everyone who who contributed, and
1: yeah, you know, we we very much appreciate the support. Uh, hopefully, you will all continue to listen as the sound quality improves. Um, but yeah, we're obviously like very excited to sort of have all of have uh, uh, all of you as a you know as a great audience and sending us feedback and all that stuff, uh, and for you know all of the generous support that you all are giving us. So thank yeah. you, thank you shall we do some should we do some feedback some read read some emails uh, we we should do some feedback uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been able to do this yeah. uh, So we've had a few guests on which obviously is very exciting um, but we do love getting uh, getting emails and feedback and and we will uh, uh, and we will always endeavor to get them in mm-hmm. Uh kind of on the air uh, as soon as we can. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, in that vein, uh, we, we uh, have uh, an email from Rob, uh, who is a, a PhD social scientist uh, turned to data scientist in the public sector. Uh, so, first of all, he, he, uh, he lets us know that uh, R and Python are uh, growing in popularity in that sector, so that uh, we should be excited about that. Uh, I, for one, am very excited about that. Uh, I am, you know, glad to hear that, uh, that our public sector work is sort of moving towards tools that are more accessible. Um, and he gives us uh, a little bit of information about his workflow, um, you know, basically, like, he kind of, like, gets a data set, has to answer some questions with that data set, and produce a written report for, uh, uh, for typically, like, a, a non-technical audience or set of decision makers to do something with. Um, and one of the things that he's wondering uh, is essentially, like, they so they are not a software engineering shop. They're, they're, they are, I, I assume... Uh, uh, so some kind of like research slash consultancy operations, so similar to the to to like the Fed or something like that. Uh, although I don't know for sure, <laughs> I'm just taking a guess here. Um, and uh, so he says uh, they have lots of uh, uh, of uh, statisticians and econ folks, but really no in-house software engineers um, and. Uh, a lot of and, and so they're they're trying to figure out uh, the best or, or like better workflows around uh, collaboration and uh, and code quality and that sort of thing. Uh, and one of the things that he sort of says is 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 basically like w- obviously when, when you don't have software engineers around it's kind of hard to tell like, what the right workflows for them for, for them to use are, and then also, like, all the stuff that's written online is essentially focused around software engineering workflows. So which of those apply to data science work versus which of those don't?
0: It's, it's actually kind of a bummer, like, that, you know, Googling, like, the answers to these questions kind of assumes that there's all of the answers on Stack Overflow basically assume that you've got an engineer around even if it's not like someone dedicated to helping you with your your needs because that's probably not yeah. the case for like it's the case for most of the people we know but it's probably not the case for most of the people who will need to implement some sort of solution for a department in a government agency or a consultancy shop or a large company that doesn't have a data science team per se. Yeah and
1: and like I, I've, I've kind of found this too that I uh, Uh, If you read through uh, a lot of even even the good stuff that's, that's, like, written online, they make some implicit assumptions about what your workflow actually is. Uh, And so, like, you know, almost everybody assumes that you'll be using something like Git and GitHub. Uh, They're not necessarily, like, thinking about, like, well, uh, if you're if you're in one of these government departments like you might even you know have like your own version control uh, pointed at like a cloud drive that's like basically manual where like you have to remember to relabel the files my, like, that's not uncommon in in those places. I'm
0: sure you did something similar in grad school but like my first version of version control was like the name of the, the file. Plus the date at the end. Yeah, Um, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, got to do the the like year month uh, day version of the date format. That's where you first like run into that as like a big problem with the the American sequence of date dating things.
1: I mean, I'm someone embarrassed to say this but i'm going to say it anyway like you know i also had the like file name underscore final final version i promise it, this time.
0: Now, yeah never Three. write yeah never write that it's, yeah. it's
1: never it never works <laughs> yeah but like i mean i'm i'm uh, so i i i have a lot of empathy for this question because like i'm i'm just thinking back to my grad school days and like what I had to do then, like I mean, at the time, I, had, I mean, never mind, like not knowing Git or SVN or whatever. Like I didn't, I, I had never heard of version control. Mm-hmm. Like I did not even know that it was a thing. Um, and, uh, I, and you know, basically, uh, you know, I was I was doing things like sort of like you said in terms of like saving. You know, saving different versions of files, and then also, like, making sure to put certain things in the cloud drive, uh, or, well, cloud, and I'm doing quotations here. You're, you're, you mean intranet. Yes. Do we need to define that term because our audience wants to do for <laughs> us? I mean, it's like basically internal Dropbox. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, basically, like, I, I, I like, knew to save certain files in the shared drive so that I could access them from, uh, uh, from multiple places. Like, this idea of sharing code with other people, like, wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, someone, uh, like, if someone had written uh, a function that could be useful to me and I knew about it, I would basically just be like, hey, can you send that to me? And then they would, like you know, make it, they would copy it and stick it in an email and send it over to me. Uh, right, gotcha. So you're saying, like, there was
0: code sharing, but, like, yeah. you wouldn't pull someone else's code and then use the functions or call a library or something like that. that yeah. They, they had built.
1: Yeah, and then, like, when I took my first job was kind of when I started to learn about, about all these other tools because the software engineers that worked there were, like, well, we're using version control. And I was like, well, what is version control? Mm-hmm. And they were and, and, and they explained the whole concept to me and I was like, oh well that makes a lot more sense than 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 what I was doing before. But at the same time, like, you know, they they also had uh, they were trying to manage both across their uh, like the code in the code base and uh, uh, um and and their system design and everything that they had kind of built up or most of the stuff was 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 probably more focused around the system design than than the code itself right so so like the architecture of the piece of software that that like they were building and so then i think back like just kind of comparing and contrasting like that experience with my grad school experience and, tr- and, like, in order to answer this question, like, kind of thinking through, well, like, what pieces of all the stuff that came afterwards would I have wanted in, like, when, or, or not wanted, but, like, what I have needed in grad school versus, like, which pieces, like, did I not really need? Um, and, and to me, it, like, kind of comes down to sort of a couple of things. Um, so, so one one was that, like, you know, my, like, like the way that we would do stuff in grad school is, like, I'd take some data, I'd write some code, uh, and then, like, you know, eventually I, w- I would get a result that was, like, that was, like, okay, this is a thing. I should run it by some people. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, like, you would package it up into some kind of presentation, But the code itself was never really included in that. So
0: interesting. Yeah,
1: like no one, no one really audited like the way that you implemented things. They were really like sitting at a higher level, just saying like, "Well, like we're going to assume everything you implemented was correct," which in retrospect is is actually a a bad assumption. (laughs) Um, uh, and and and, like that's one of the things that I would say is, is actually quite important to change. Um, But we're going to look at what you did at a conceptual level and essentially say, well, like, do we agree with the conceptual approach here? And then intuitively, do the results make sense? And you can catch a lot of things in that latter step of, like, intuitively, do these results make sense, Mm -hmm. especially in a field like physics where there is, like, where, you know, essentially, like, you're looking at a thing, like, throwing off these super high-energy particles, and then someone asks the question, like, well, does conservation of energy work here? And then you run the calculation and realize uh, like you run the calculation within your simulation and realize that you have violated that. People yeah. always have these like stories of these
0: heroic like researchers that came out with a result that didn't make intuitive sense, that sense and then they persisted and persisted and persisted and eventually they were proven that the data and the model was right and the intuitive common sense was wrong. Yeah. Um, the vast majority of the time. Most of the time. That's not <laughs> <laughs> not, not how that plays out. <laughs> um,
1: um, and so, like, you know, like, you would basically, like, catch errors because somebody, like, looks at your results and was like, that doesn't make any sense. Or, like, did you make sure to check these constraints, which are, like, physical laws that cannot be violated. Mm-hmm. And then that's when you find out that, like, oh, I made a big mistake. <laughs> um
0: so, so in consulting, when I, my, I when I went into consulting, that was like my first. Um, re, like I did some stuff in uh, uh, undergrad, and then I didn't go back to grad school until after I got into the workforce. Yeah. But like we had stronger, we had much stronger version controlling than what you're describing there. Someone would always run your code um, before, uh, like it like hit production mm-hmm. effectively. Um, so, like, we would always there would always be two coders per project in consulting. Even though we didn't have GitHub, we would do we would do the shared internet thing with different files, and then we have a separate folder for syntax, and then a, another folder for the data that you would run on. You would never change, like, you never would alter the base data. You'd always use syntax to yeah.
1: to do that, and that's partly because, like, yeah, no, Dan, that was that would that that was a hard line for us too. Mm-hmm. Like, the data was the data. Like, you. You could, like, augment it inside the code, but you could never change it. Right. So, uh,
0: and that's, you know, I'm grateful that um, that uh, Dan Kwong, the guy that I worked for, uh, like, had all of these hard opinions about how to make things replicable. Yeah. Um, because, like, I felt, I, like, by the time I got to GitHub, um, I was ready for it because, like, they just made all of the things that he... Like emphasized in the, that first job that I had, much easier to do. Now, like that brings us to like should should Rob be pushing GitHub on people?
1: Yeah. So, I I I mean, to me, GitHub is a tool. Like, it's a very nice tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll I'll just say like when I think back, like. Like, what are the actual, like, workflow changes or tooling changes that made the biggest difference for me? Uh, So, version control is the first one in terms of, like, actually having a system that manages that for you. Mm -hmm. uh, So that, like, when you do screw something up, like, you can roll it back. Uh, Unit testing is the second one. So like rather than just like, uh, so rather than just you know writing your five hundred to thousand lines of code and assuming it all works like being forced to like break that up into chunks and testing each chunk independently to make sure it does what you think it does uh, like that that made a big difference for me in ter- in terms of like starting to make sure that the that that like I could trust my results. And then the last piece is is like the collaborative aspect of it, uh, which is which is which is code reviews, because mm-hmm. because again that was a thing we didn't do uh, in in grad school, and like ninety five percent of the errors in your work are just from like I didn't write this code correctly, mm-hmm. uh, and and if in, if before the presentation of the results, like we had started. Uh, like, like our, our workflow had been slightly different, right, where basically, like, maybe you do a presentation on, like, this is the approach I'm planning, and then the next thing you do is, like, after after you've written your code, you have to do a code review with someone to walk them through, like, here's how I actually implemented this. Um, like, like for me in my first jobs, like, that that made a very big difference in terms of, like, what? Like my just getting more diligent about code mm-hmm. uh, and, and also, like, learning from other people, like, better ways of doing stuff and catching all of the little errors that kind of compounded up to, like, produce something that was nonsense. Uh, and so then the question you end up asking is, like, okay, well, what's the best way to do code reviews uh, GitHub at, at least in, at least thus far for me has been the best tool I found I found for doing that. Uh, it's by no means the only one.
0: Yeah, I mean, so Rob doesn't have anyone to do code review for him. Yeah, so I wonder if GitHub is worth like get, I, people complain like to me. GitHub is, like, a, a godsend in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. People really complain about it as a lot, as, like, a piece of software, and especially as, like, a scripting language. Oh uh, Well, that's Git. Yeah. Um, yeah, Git, Git is Git is weird. I'm, it's not intuitive. If there's no one who's really skilled at it yeah. around to show you how it works, I kind of despair of it. Yeah. Like, uh, like, you can, if you're one of those people who's really good at, like, figuring, just figuring out how software works... And I think there are people out there like that, then it's not that big of a problem.
1: yeah so 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 just to just to kind of separate these two things, right? so so git uh, is a is is a piece of software. Uh, it is an open source version control protocol. Yes uh, you mostly like it was it was essentially so it was written by Linus Torvalds, who's the same guy that wrote the Linux kernel. Uh, and and like became the de facto piece of version uh, the the de facto version control standard for anyone who was writing stuff for for Linux. And
0: there are many different like either pieces
1: of software that like yeah.
0: use this language. GitHub's the one that GitHub they, is probably is it the large, most popular. It is
1: it is the most popular. It's but, definitely
0: the one where like most of the people we know uses it. But yeah. there are other ones that are. More like just like a more like a piece of software and less like a control terminal. Yeah. Um. That other people use, um. And especially I think if you go to a smaller shop, if you're the only engineer in your your company, you're probably using something
1: that is not GitHub. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so uh, the reason why most people ended up moving towards Git versus some of the other version control systems was that Git made branching software really easy. Uh. Meaning that, like, you could take your code base and essentially, like, create a local copy of it uh, where you could make changes without affecting what was going on in the, in, like, the global, you know, the global production system mm-hmm. and then play with those changes uh, and then even uh, give other people a way to access those changes mm-hmm. without having to go through the, 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 the prod pathway uh, and then, when everything was ready, you could merge it back in relatively easily. Um, the thing is, it does a lot of things that look magical, and so it's one of it's it's one of those things where, like, if you haven't used it before, you don't have a lot of experience in it. It is super easy to get your system into a into a state that's highly screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, my my experience with it has been that. You know, there's probably, like, four or five different commands you have to know. Mm -hmm. If you stick to those, which will cover 99% of the things you have to do, like, you can kind of keep yourself in a reasonable steady state when you move towards the the more advanced things. So, like, you will often see engineers advocating for what's called the rebase workflow. Uh, I... Like, my experience with that has been that you have to be really, really good to, like, be able to reason about what that's going to do. Yep. Um, the
0: other thing about that is, like, often it's not a great sign of the condition of the code on yeah, production.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, like, my, my, my advice to most people is just stay away from that. Use branches and merges, and you'll be fine. Uh, the reason engineers don't tend to like that is basically because then all the little, uh, all of the little additions that you make to your code, like basically create, uh, like each of those will show up as like a line item change. And so, if you want to track back to say, like, well, who made this change, and you only care about the major change, mm-hmm. like you could have thousands of lines of changes to parse through. Like I, I personally, I I feel like if you look at this from a risk reward perspective, like it, the the reward relative to the risk is just not there, because because rebase can completely wipe out like everything that you are doing if you're not careful with it.
0: Yeah, and it it, it is like again, like I think. Like, Git is similar to R in having, like, annoyingly specific parameters yeah. that are, like, not easy to suss out on yeah. your own. If you don't have someone around, who can... Like, again, you don't... For any given job, you probably only need six or seven Git commands to get through, but you probably also need someone to say which are the six or seven yeah. Git commands you need. Yeah, um, And that's... But that's, again, going back to Rob's context, yeah. there's probably no one around who, who's going to do that. I would say that, like... An off-the-shelf versioning solution that may or may not be Git-based is probably I, good for him. Like, don't trust yourself to label the files right.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. Like, so so you definitely want some form of version control. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll be honest. Like, I I, I used a system uh, called SVN before Git, and mm-hmm. SVN was so much worse and was like literally it was like server-based software that you needed. To maintain that sounds awful. It was terrible. Um, so you know, I I don't know that there's a better solution than get out there, but yeah, but GitHub. I, I don't know that GitHub is particularly yeah, the right solution. Yeah. So I mean, so for something like GitHub, you need your IT folks mm-hmm. to like to to like si- sign off on that, right? And they, they is, probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. I I mean I. I and you know, basically, to me, unless you are religiously doing code reviews with somebody else, it's the, the it, value add is uh, much less. The value add, <laughs> and and you really like like once you get to the point where you need to be sharing code and doing code reviews, mm-hmm. then you need something like GitHub or Bitbucket or GitLab, mm-hmm. right? Which are basically just these like you know they're they're the they're the SaaS services that that like you could. Buy to host mm-hmm. your, uh, your 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 uh, your code repositories, but I would start with you know if you've got no one to do code review with anyway, uh, I would I would just start with Git. Uh, Software Carpentry has has like a nice set of tutorials on how to use Git in a very simple way, uh, and they'll teach you those like five commands and. And then, like, after that, like, you'll be off and running. You don't have to worry about it at all.
0: Yeah.
1: And then I think
0: for the most part, like, you know, Rob's question is, like, what, you know, I'd like to advocate for these tools. Yeah. But for the most part, like, it's not. Like, you also have to go, like, there's a trade-off, right? Like, there's the optimal set of tools if everybody used them. Yeah. But if you are, like, it turns into the XKCD joke of... Now there are ten competing standards, <laughs> right? By advocating for the optimal one and moving people off of an old system, and if the migration isn't complete, you're actually at a a worse spot than where you started for, from. I like to me, like there's there's no good solution to that. Yeah, like yeah. I I think you you have to write your you have to write your stuff in the place where there's an audience for it. Um, and then, like, you have to put your, your code and your analyses in the, in the spot where people will look at it. And then you have to, like, to me, like, I think you should be a, uh, an advocate for moving on to stuff like R and Python for the people around you. Yeah. yeah. As much as you can.
1: Yeah, like, where, where, where people tend to get into trouble is if, like, half of the group is using GitHub, and the other half are stashing their files on the shared drives. Um, Because, like, for for the centralized repositories to really work, like, you kind of need, like, you need buy-in from everyone that you're working with, Mm -hmm. because they have to know where to go to find your code. And if their expectation is, well, I'm going to find it on the shared drives, and you're sticking everything in GitHub, uh, and your expectation is they're going to put everything in GitHub and they're sticking things in the shared drives, mm-hmm. then then your whole work culture breaks down. And so and so and so to me, like the way that I would sort of that I would sort of start this is just like number one. So make sure that you have enough flexibility to use the the software tools on the analysis side that you would like, right? Meaning that if 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 you want to be able to use Python and R, like make sure that 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 you can and you can install all the packages that you think you, that that like you're going to need, and that when new stuff comes out, it's, it's easy for, for you to install that. Uh, number two, like, make sure that you can use at least some version control for yourself so that you're not, like, labeling out files and stuff. Um, number three, if you can find, like, a, even a small support group of people around you to, to do informal code reviews or walk through implementations of things, like, that would not be a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially if you can find a meetup in... In in your area, so that you can get some information from the outside world, like that 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 would be valuable too.
0: Emotional support yeah. is really important <laughs> in this. Um,
1: and then once you have all of that in place, like like it, and and you have a strong culture around the the open source tools and people, uh, uh and people reviewing each other's code, like. That's probably when I would look at at like centralized code repositories, because until people start seeing and really understanding that everyone is writing the same thing, uh, they're not going to really see the value in the shared centralized uh, in in like the centralized repo where you can easily go grab code that someone else has written that's validated in some way. It would be really fun to organize, reorganize how the government works on code, and software. Yeah,
0: and like, I, I, I'm envious of people who've like taken that on as a career. Yeah. Um,
1: that would be, that would be really hard, really rewarding. Um, complicated. Yeah. And also unit testing, like like learn how to test your software. <laughs> uh, I, I've, I, uh, I've, I've seen a lot of quality gains. Uh, just, just from
0: that alone. So from, from his description, it sounds like he is mostly dealing with bespoke data sets. Yeah. So there's limits to what he can gain through automated any part of his workflow other than version control, I yeah. would say. Oh, I mean, you
1: know? I, I, I'm i not suggesting unit testing in, in the way that, like, engineers think about it, mm-hmm. like automated tests that run on a build. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just thinking about, like, you're writing a function to... Or, or like you're writing an analysis, right? So that analysis is like you got 15 lines of code that takes in data and outputs something. Right. If you are if you have a proposed lift that your model says, like run the model with zero lift, and does it do the thing that you... Yeah, well, yeah. It, and like if you're running some processing mm-hmm. on the data itself, right? So like you've decided you're going to impute some missing data in a certain way, like, separate that out into its own module and then test it with known inputs mm-hmm. so, that you, so that you can be sure that it is actually imputing the way that you th- thought it should be. Um, you know, that... Uh, I, I, I've just seen a lot of mistakes made when, like, you know, people look at two lines of data and they're like, okay, here's the processing I want to run, and they, like, write a little five-line script to do it, and then they stick their model code right underneath there. And somewhere in the 100,000 lines of data are 10 edge cases that break the assumptions that they made around, around right. that processing. But now everything is one piece, and so they can't tell, like, well, did the model just not work, or was my processing code wrong?
0: Right. So, again, what, what Ian, Ian's saying is, like, there's a value to testing your Assumptions, but those are hard to test when you don't write modular code. Exactly. So I don't think it's not necessarily, like, unit testing like someone else would describe it to you. But, like, those are the important points to have, is that, like, you break out your assumptions into a series. Like, they're not necessarily, it's not foundation plus build exactly. But there is, like, a sequence of which your assumptions proceed. And the, the, you know, the second order of operations uh, assumptions, like don't work if the first order of operations like assumptions don't work. So if you build modular code, you can be like I ran the module here and then I ran the module here and then I ran the module here and everything was fine until it got to this yep. uh, this this module. Yeah. Um so um that's the best we can do as far as advice on this stuff and uh, it's kind of sad because I think there's limits to the gains that we're like that, we would like like the, There's a lot of gains you get from working in a engineering shop and working yeah. like an engineer. Yeah, there's other engineers around. The, yeah, there's like there's scale. Or, there's an implied scale to yeah, it. It's like, or, or or even just like learning from what those engineers do. Right, and it's not just like a, a productivity gains. Right, it's yeah. not just like units you produce per level level of effort in the long run, but it like actually leads to higher quality analysis. Yeah. And that kind of sucks for people who are don't have access to those engineering resources. Yeah. Um, that don't have that like that scale like where you're repeating similar tasks to produce different analyses over time. Um, like that's the choice is often to do less engineer looking stuff is often the right
1: choice when you're in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, to like basically optimize for the audience themselves.
0: Yeah, yeah. You you can't. You're not. Everything has to have an audience. You yeah. have to. You have to think about their assumptions, their pro, proclivities, their language.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and, I mean, you know, to me, you can hide a lot of a lot, uh, like a, a lot of the engineering stuff on the underneath. Like you're you're not really using it to optimize your uh, to like. Uh, like it, if if you're working in like a Silicon Valley startup firm that has a heavy engineering culture, like the you're you're using the engineering workflow to like really uh, uh, to like optimize group throughput. Mm-hmm. Like in this case, you can't really do that, right? Because you're you don't have engineers in that group. So like the decisions that you would make. To, to optimize the throughput of 10 people who can all write Python code in their sleep are, are like, not the same mm-hmm. as the decisions that you would make to, like, optimize throughput for a group of 10 people, five of whom are, like, econ subject matter experts and five of whom are, 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 uh, are statisticians. And two are, of two whom are bureaucrats. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you can still use some subset of those tools uh, if you are the person who, is like, who actually has to like write some code to produce analysis, you can use some subset of those tools to optimize your own productivity uh, and, and minimize your own set of errors.
0: Um, which brings us to, I think, another discussion that yeah. we had with, uh, with Ben Stansel on Twitter. Uh, he wanted to know like, whether engineering was, a, was now a core skill of analytics. Yeah. Um, and there was like a fair amount of good discussion on it. Um, I think I would, I would separate the, there's like a positive aspect to this question and a normative yeah. aspect.
1: So he, he, he phrased this question in what I thought was a pretty interesting way, which is like, uh, are analysts engineers, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's kind of the corollary. It's not just like, well, do you have to have an engineering skill set? It's like, actually, well, like, are you an engineer? Um, which which I thought was a uh, was was at least an interesting way to kind of couch the question, because, like, that also has implications for like for what you should care about and. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain positive and normative to those of us who are economically stupid? Um, it's actually a philosophy term, okay. not a, not a not an economic term. To those of us who are philosophically
0: <laughs> stupid. Um, so positive is describing the world as it is, and normative is describing the world as it should be. Okay. Um, so there's a, a, a moral judgment involved in one. Yeah. Uh, the So like... The answer, I feel like there's there's way that like there's parts of this that should be trivial, and there are parts of this that are interesting. Yeah, um, I think there's a trivial answer to our analyst engineers. I think analytics is a subs- is definitely a subspecies of engineering. Um, like you're building tools on some level, um, even if you're just doing it in Excel or what have you. Um, every analysis has like a Lifespan, And there are some that are very short, but most of them are like have some some length of span and have to be regarded as a tool that is built on some level. Yeah, I would I
1: would say, like, if that's true, uh, most most analysts that I have met do not act that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't think a lot of people necessarily think of themselves as tool builders when they're analysts. Yeah, they're,
1: they're more like, here's the spreadsheet, here's the answer.
0: Yeah, and
1: I, I think... don't assume anyone is actually going to execute the cells.
0: Yeah, um, it's the expedient thing to assume, right? Yeah. Um, I also think another thing is a trivial question to answer, but maybe I'm wrong about this, which is, is the engineering skill set core to the analytics skill set and I would say it is not like you can be a perfectly good analyst and be pretty crap at all of the engineering stuff whereas the intuitions around causation um, verbal intelligence um, being able to like think things through to from foundation to conclusion are like all in the core of analytical skill set and if you don't have those no matter how good you are at engineering you're not yeah. you're not you're not doing your job as an analyst.
1: And yeah, I mean that was definitely my my perspective as well. Like like is it core? So I mean I I I make a distinction between the people who who build data products so like machine learning models that are going to sit inside a piece of software and have to produce a result once a second or more mm-hmm. versus like versus like the here's some data we need to make a decision like help us figure out what's going on here. Yeah. So it depends um, on the
0: tool, the type of tool that you're building, Yeah. How,
1: the, how important the engineering skills are. Yeah. Like, if you are building data products, like, so engineering skill is, is absolutely core to that. Uh, and, 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 and the reason is like you're implementing that in a software system. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so just like if you were writing front end code or if you were writing like, you know, like server side scripts, like it's, it's the same thing. Like there is a, there, uh, it is not the only thing you need to know how to do, Mm -hmm. uh, but, but it is definitely core to being able to do that kind of work. Um, it, to me, like there's more of a question uh, uh, on that on that on that decision support side. Uh, I, I I tend to agree with you for 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 that uh, sort of subset of roles. Like I do not believe the engineering skill set is core to them.
0: Right. So now now I want to like again I'm going to keep stating trivial things until we get to something interesting. Yeah. Um, is engineering skill valuable to add to like if you're an analyst and you can like of course yeah. right does it have a multiplier effect on that core yeah. yeah um you need to have that you need to have that analytical core in order to be an analyst but like i would advise zero people to like not get better at engineering yeah and also like i i do think code literacy is now fun, a fundamental like skill to have. Um, so that doesn't mean that you can write code, but like that you understand basically how it works. Yeah. Um, now, like, is that even a skill? Like, is that something you can acquire? I think it mostly is something you can acquire. Code, code
1: literacy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I it, it, it's it. I think it's more difficult to acquire than than like the world wants you to think it is. Mm. Uh, because like it, it is. Uh, there's lots of resources out there today to like basically like like learn how to code at uh, at like uh, you know you could call it like a a, a pseudo beginner level. Mm-hmm. So like just like well, learn the Python commands, learn this, learn that. Um, the 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 problem is like if you want to get really good. Um, or, or, or you need to actually, like, read system code or something that would actually be written in a production system... Um, like mo- most of the stuff you would learn in a in like a basic like you know Python 101 course like you will almost never see that yeah in, in like in like an actual software system because like it's just not performant
0: yeah I, I the way to acquire code literacy is not to take the camp yeah. classes unfortunately but yeah
1: like like you kind of need to be exposed to people who know how to do this well so that you can see what they've written, uh, and 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 like, it, it, you know, it, it's kind of challenging because, and as it turns out, software engineering is an apprenticeship-based field. Like, you get out of out of the beginner canyon by like. By, like, being able to observe and interact with people who are better than you.
0: Yes. So that um, that brings me to, I think, the, the maybe we're starting to get to an interesting part here. Yeah. Um, so I think if I'm a, a junior, like, a junior analyst coming out of a quantitative field, like, there's no question that I should go and try to expand my software engineering skills. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a huge advantage in thinking of your analyses as tools and thinking about them as having a life cycle and an audience and thinking about it from, like, a user design perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you let's imagine you're a hiring manager. Um, do you insist that every new entry person have, like, this engineering competency? Yeah. Um, and, like, again, I think it becomes, like, there are... There are wrinkles, right? Like, how big is your company? How big is your team? Yeah. Um, what kind of work are you doing? Are definitely all things that matter to that question. But give me your bias on this. Yeah.
1: So, like, you know, here, here's where using your lexicon, like the positive versus normative, mm-hmm. <laughs> come in. Uh, just remind me which one of those is the world as it is. Positive is the world as it is. Right. Normative,
0: you know, norms. Right. Think, of, right. think of the word norms. Okay. Right. Yeah,
1: and, and and I mean, we could quibble on the normative here too, because because I think like fields do change over time, mm-hmm. and so like if you're asking the question of like, well, what is going to be like, what would be the ideal ten years from now? Like, it's not the same as the ideal now, and the ideal now is not the same as it as it would have been ten years ago. Right, like I think, like the the proliferation of databases like definitely changed things, mm-hmm. uh, basically because they 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 all of a sudden allowed you to distribute large amounts of data, which like were much more difficult before, and so there is there is definitely a subset of analysts who uh, uh, who like need to have skill set in in accessing that data for themselves. Um, can it be learned? Yeah. Are there tools for it? Yes. Does every company use those tools? No. Um, but, but, but then there's the added question that sort of like, like just looking, looking at the question today of, of like, of like hiring somebody. So, you know, the issue is it is is basically so so if you look at, at at a team like mine or most of the other teams that i know are you going to need that skill set to be effective right the answer is absolutely yes which right? which skill set uh, the the the, the like technical engineering skill set. Right. You, like you, the team definitely yeah, like I don't the, think anyone would disagree that yeah, your, yeah. your data science team yeah, needs that. Yeah. Skillset. So 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 the team and every member on that team will like like running at like equilibrium level, like needs to have that skill set to be effective. Uh, and and the reason is that like like they're gonna have to access data for themselves. Mm-hmm. They will eventually like end up in a position at some point in time where, like, they have to write code that's going to go into the production system. Now, as we've said, all of those skills are learnable, right? So so then the question is, well, does everyone have to have that when they enter the team, right? Yeah. And, and that's where you come down to, like, the world as we would like it to be versus the world as it is. Uh, to me, like... Like, that part's really based based around market dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. Because, so, if I, if I look at my team and I basically say, like, okay, I need people, like, people have to have this skill set on my team to be effective, then what that means is that all things being equal, if I have two candidates who are equally good at all the other stuff, one of whom has the technical skill and one of whom doesn't, I'm going to hire the one with the, with the technical skill, right? Right. Uh, and so, so that's, that's thing number one, right? Which basically means that having the technical skill, assuming you are equally good at all of the other stuff, like immediately moves you to the top of the pile. Yeah. Again, I don't think, I don't feel like that's
0: controversial. Yeah, that's
1: not controversial. But then you have to ask the question of like, well, what is going to happen in the market when people start to understand that dynamic, right? So what it basically means is, is that. Uh, uh, so, so in order to understand that, you you ask two questions, right? So, question number one is uh, is what is going to happen when people start to understand that uh, that that all things being equal, the person with the technical ch- skill will be chosen, right? So, what's going to happen is people will start to try to learn that technical skill, right? So, so that they have it and they can move themselves to the top of the pile. Right. So uh, so then, like once that starts happening, uh, then what is going to happen to 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 the person who doesn't have that technical skill? Right. So as other people start to fill in, fill in that technical gap, it essentially means that if 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 you choose not to fill in that gap, you have to get comparatively better to be able uh, for, for, like, me to want to hire you, right? Because as I start to see more candidates with, with the technical skill, then mm-hmm. the, the average analytical skill of those candidates is presumably going up, right? Which basically means that if you don't have the technical skill, you're going to end up, you know, you, you will end up further and further down the pile. So your analytical skill, in order to get hired, in, in order to get hired, like, has to be that much higher because you've, you've got to be at least above the mean of all the people who, uh, who, who already have the technical skill. And then you have this additional dynamic where as more and more people develop that technical skill, it gets less and less rational for me as a hiring manager to train people in that skill. Because if I can choose someone who has it already and that person is, is like, equally good or almost as good as someone who doesn't have it, then I'm always going to just make that hire, and then I start assuming that, it, and, then, and then it basically become, becomes a requirement to, like, enter my team. Does that, does that make sense? It does. I think your, your market is a little more
0: rational than it, the, the actual market is. So I think um, I think that the demand side effects will always be ahead of the supply side effects on this one. Mm-hmm. So in this case, what I mean is like people will e- it's very easy to measure technical skill. like you're already achieved a technical skill. Mm-hmm. And so the demand for those people will be high, but like it's harder for people to train like it's slower for them to train up. On that, so the supply won't just like automatically move up to um, (laughs) yeah to meet
1: that demand. It like takes time, obviously.
0: Well, I mean, I think that those lags mean that you're not necessarily going to like you will see less of the people with a technical skill on the market Mm -hmm. when you're trying to hire into especially an entry level position. Yeah, than the like the like if there was no lag between those two things. Mm So to me, I think I like I'm not sure that it's that rational to insist on like the technical skill and have like like not train people up. I do think there's like a possible negative indicator that like you're not. Like, if you're on the market and you're not trying to invest in your technical skill, that, like, you're maybe not <laughs> not actually that good at analytics. Yeah. <laughs> so that part, though, like, worries me in my model.
1: Yeah. But, well, yeah. but I feel like if you... You're, you're saying basically because, like, you should be looking at the world and seeing, like, hey, this is becoming more highly valued by the market. I should be investing in it. Right.
0: But what, what I would assert is that, like, if you were a hiring manager and you had two slots open mm-hmm. and you had a choice between... Hiring someone, one person above the like the like a medium technical bar, mm-hmm. and one person who would be above a low technical bar, mm-hmm. um, versus two people that were above the medium technical bar, you would fill that like you would have an easier time filling the one and one like the one where you've got one low bar and one one medium bar.
1: Um, I I mean I I probably would. But, like, I don't know that I would ever view that, that kind of decision-making that way, right? Like, you know, because, because, because for me, I would never say, well, like, medium bar, low bar. Like, uh, what I would say... or. or or like the way that I, I tend to look at these things is basically like from from a value generation perspective, like what is what is the right call for the business? Right. So
0: I'm, I, mean, I wanted to get, let me get to that, and yeah. I, like because you move like you get someone in faster on the low bar and can spend some time training. Yeah. Like I don't I don't think it's obvious that you actually move faster by waiting for two medium bar people. Instead of hiring, like, you need at least one person on your team who's above the medium bar, I think, if you're going to train the other person, for sure. But, like, you probably, I feel like a lot, more than the, the, the current market indicates, like, you're actually going to move faster by having a diversity of technical skill and moving, like, getting that those two hires in quickly, as opposed to waiting for two people that pass above two two fairly strong thresholds. Yeah. I mean, so I, I I do think, I do think there's a case to be made that that actually is the right thing for the business. Now, the other part I think, which is a a semi non-market dynamic that people ignore is that if you insist on two medium technical humans instead, that's a much easier team to manage (laughs) for, for one manager um than the, the medium low
1: yeah yeah I mean i i i think for me like the the way that i would probably the, the the way that i would look at it would be like my you know like if these are analytical positions i'm focused on that skill set in order to make the higher mm-hmm. um and so like my preference would be for the analytical skill set plus plus the technical skill yeah and that's that's it's like the, is it
0: preference versus threshold yeah like
1: so so the reality is like i will hire the first person who clears the analytical bar mm-hmm. right and then and then adjust the second rec accordingly mm-hmm. but so so that's why i was i was i think i think yeah. i think i really want to clarify this so this yeah. is like you're saying, like,
0: the in order to do an analytics job, you have to pass an analytic, and whether that's data science or even data engineer, probably. Yeah. Um, you have to pass the analytic threshold. And then you strictly prefer more technical candidates to less technical candidates. Yes. But that doesn't mean you have an absolute threshold on how no. technical they are. No. And I see, I do think that no, that, no. that is interesting. Yeah. I do think that is not what a lot of
1: yeah. hiring practice is. Yeah. It's like, but this is the reason why I'm saying that the market dynamics are important here. Oh, they super right? are. Like, this is and, a labor market and, question. Yeah. And and and, 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 like the point that I was trying to make was that like, given that that's how I hire, mm-hmm the more people that start to show up with technical skill the harder it is going to be for someone who doesn't have it to get that job yeah i i right?
0: I, I, I agree with that but i think there there's two there's two mm-hmm. um, like, for the hiring manager, like, you have two decisions. One is, like, do I set a minimum threshold? Yeah. And then what skills do I prefer? Like, what, what do I prefer yeah. to what I don't prefer? Yeah. I mean, And, you, and I think I, the other thing I want to assert here yeah. is, like, most hi- hiring managers are setting a minimum threshold. And you, a strong advocate of for engineering skills
1: <laughs> in data science, are saying, nope. <laughs> 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 yeah that's fair and I, I mean I, I i I've seen people develop this stuff on the job yeah i mean i, developed I i've it on seen the job I've, I, <laughs> right so so like i <laughs> I, w- I want to do a little therapy <laughs> like
0: the i like you know me as like one of the least technical people that can pass the reasonably pass themselves off as a data scientist. Um, but for whatever reason I get really offended when someone doesn't follow like good engineering practices <laughs> and like I feel it like emotionally like it upsets me it's in a way like, that is are not, not strictly rational and yeah. it definitely comes from a like this is a thing where I feel inadequate but like when other people show themselves to be doing something much worse than, <laughs> like, than what I would have done I feel exceptionally like whoa 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 whoa, whoa <laughs>
1: yeah. about that so so, um yeah so like i mean you know i i guess the thing that i'm saying is that like uh, it it's like like the thing that i was trying to impart on people like kind of th- through this conversation was like look like is this a core skill set to producing value in the job like uh, today probably not right like it, is, it, is it a skill set that is valuable to producing value in the job? Absolutely. I think th- those are two different questions. Uh, yeah. but, but then if you ask the question like, should I be focused on it? Yes. Right? The answer to that as a candidate is yes. Right. And, and the reason it's yes is because it is valuable to producing value in the job. And everyone else in the market knows this. And so they are all investing in it. Right. And so like if you don't then you end up comparatively like further and further down down the list. And like even if the initial dynamics are set up so su- su- such that it's like mostly the people who don't have great analytical skills that are investing in this technical side because they don't know how to how to upskill on the harder, on like the harder to access things like problem solving. So you know, meaning that that, that there's like an inverse correlation between analytical skill set and technical skill set in it's terms it's at of at least orthogonal. Yeah, in terms of what's available on, yeah. on 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 the market. Even even if that was the initial dynamics. Like, at this point, it's probably orthogonal. If it's orthogonal, it essentially means, like, you're sampling from the same distribution of, of like, analytical skill. Orthogonal
0: means independent people, just yeah. in case. It uh, technically means at a right angle, but, like,
1: whatever. Um, sorry. Yeah. We so, use that word a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so... So basically, from now, so now, if you if you look at these two groups, technical plus non-technical, like you're sampling the analytical skill from from the same distribution in in those two, right? And so, like, if you then think about about the secretary problem as like me as the hiring manager, mm-hmm. right? Like just watching a flow of candidates come in, uh, you can kind of start to calculate out, like, well, what is the likelihood that in a group of, you know, of 10 candidates that there's going to be someone at least... Like, if you're a non-technical person, that there will be someone at least as good as me on the analytical side who also has the technical skill. Yeah. yeah. So, I really... And that, that is... That that probability is, is rising over time. Yeah. So, I, I really think it helps to clarify this question as
0: to, like, whether you're thinking about it as a hiring manager or whether you're thinking about it as a candidate. We've both been both. Yeah. So, like, I, I don't... I feel like... That people switch back and forth between the two perspectives, yeah. and there's a lot of different
1: things yeah. at play. Yeah, it's like, but but like, I do feel like this is kind of one of the things that tends to show up around these like job discussions mm-hmm. that people think about 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 job discussions in uh, you know like or or they think about the. Uh, the, like, interview process and the hiring process in, like, isolation as a candidate. Yeah. Right? Of, like, well, I'm showing you my skill set. It's good. Why are you hiring me? And they're not, like, like, they're not really thinking about the other person in the equation, who is the hiring manager, or the other way around. Also, well, it uh, <laughs> the other way around also happens. But
0: there's more. But like, there's more candidates than hiring managers in the yeah. world, so you see the you see yeah. the more like the candidate biased yeah. critique more than you see the hiring manager mm-hmm. biased critique. Yeah,
1: it's like, but like at, as a candidate, you do have to be thinking about like, well, what is the hiring manager going to be thinking? What is the hiring manager going to be seeing? Mm-hmm. Right, because you're not. Not the only candidate that they're talking to, right? They're gonna see somewhere between 20 and 50 people for for uh, an open slot. And then moreover, like just like for you, there's long-term implications to the hire, like for them <laughs> there there's certainly long-term implications right. to the hire.
0: I think the part that makes that difficult for candidates, like I think there's some where you can transparently see, like they just like you look at this critique of the process, and there was, like, it wasn't optimized to pick my skill set out. And it's yeah. like, that's okay, actually. Like, yeah. I felt that way after interviews, too. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. Um, the, the part that is hard to ask people to do is to think about the path dependency that goes into writing a rec or managing a team or hiring someone. Yeah. Where it's like, there are great <laughs> candidates out there that you cannot manage. Like yeah. That is, like, the... That they're not going to be a fit for your organization, for your team, for your tech stack, for you as a human being. And the more, like, the better you, like, I I really genuinely think that if there's only one actual portable skill as a manager, it is can you, the human being, manage a a more diverse set of human beings? Like, what is the maximum size and count distinct on weird, like, idiosyncratic Work preferences that you can deal with. Yeah, that is your skill. Like that's the only portable skill in management. The, yeah, the wider you can cast that net, the better you are at it. Yeah,
1: and and and, and all the there's also the question of like Reco- of what,
0: recognizing who you can't manage is more important yeah. than that.
1: <laughs> well, it, and there's the question of like, well, what kind of person can the organization support too? Yes, right? Because so I mean, it, you know. Going back to our previous question about, like, the two racks and, like, is there a minimum technical bar, like, there, there still is probably a minimum one, right? There's like, always a minimum. Yeah, like... You know, if I had someone where the entire Go to goggle.com instead of Google.com. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so like certainly that would be one thing. You know. I would say like if I had someone even if they were like the most analytic or or like if they were like call it like ninetieth percentile on on the analytics side, but literally all of their experience was in was in Excel and building Excel models and that's what they gravitated towards, like I I could not like like it, it. would take me too long to make that person productive uh, in in your in, in like work, m- my environment. It, yeah, uh, and so like yeah, they could be awesome, but but like it, you know, and, and their skill set could be amazing. And in other contexts, like I might actually like they might be the first hire that I would make. Mm-hmm. But in the context in which I live today. Like it, it, it would just take me too long to like make them productive. And so like they don't meet that minimum threshold. I think we've
0: we, we have like we've gotten a lot out of this. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's time to wrap for the day. Um, any like any anything you want to bring up before we before we go?
1: this was a good one. Yeah. No, I
0: think I love like, talking about labor market dynamics, yeah. and I think we've got more. I'd love to have more people on to talk about it. This would be a good guest guest topic to follow up on. Yeah. Um, all right. Thank you for listening. Um, you can reach out to us at uh, back at smalldivcast.com, or um, you can get us on Twitter at Of Differences. Uh, donate to the Patreon page, um, which is... Uh, of Differences on Patreon as well. Eventually we might upgrade everything over to Of Differences.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we do have that domain now. We just haven't done anything with it yet. Yes. Um, and you can get me on Twitter at Old Jacket. Uh, and at Ian Blue1 on Twitter. All
0: right. Thanks for listening. Um, and, you know, you're not alone out there.